she became known as everyone's baby. Everyone's baby. Her story captured the attention of the world. Her mom took a phone call and she wandered into the backyard and slipped and fell into a well 22 feet deep and only 8 inches wide. It was October 14, 1987 in Midland, Texas. An 18-month-old baby Jessica McClure, she was known as Baby Jessica, and she was trapped in this well for 58 hours. The world watched as rescue workers uh, tried as best they could and struggled for 58 hours to free her. It was a delicate operation. She could have been killed at any moment because her head was was uh, in a certain precarious position. Her, her leg, her left leg was above her head for 58 hours. They drilled another shaft parallel to the one she fell down and then a horizontal tunnel through solid rock to get to her. Dan Rather exclaimed this when she was freed. Jessica McClure is up. She is alive. What a fighter. And so many people had fought to free her. The story melted the heart of America. In her life, she had to have 15 surgeries. They had to reform her entire left foot. It was above her head 58 hours. Gangrene had set in. The doctor, though, saved her foot. But don't we love rescue stories? Don't we love to hear a story of someone being saved? I love hearing about how people come to Christ, how they get saved by Jesus, a testimony of of a soul being saved by Christ, how salvation is possible and the redemption price was paid at the cross and God frees people from the prison of sin who are trapped in a web of lies. And yet, for every baby Jessica story, there are stories of those who did not make it like the condo tower that fell this week in Florida, just crushes our hearts. Many are still missing, presumed dead, despite heroic rescue efforts, because things don't always work out the way we had hoped. It isn't always a, a great story that makes, us, that makes us feel good. We love rescue stories, we love to hear of someone being saved, we love to hear of, of mercy, even when prisoners get set free. But we don't like to hear about calamity. We don't want to hear about catastrophe or, or much less judgment. We don't want to hear about justice being served, really. Or crime and punishment. Someone getting the death penalty. You never rejoice in that. You never rejoice when someone doesn't get paroled or doesn't go free and Someone gets what they deserve. For every story of mercy extended, and every story of rescue, there are maybe 10 stories of judgment given. That God is fair, God is just, he does everything right. And he tells us the truth about both salvation and judgment. In Jude 5 to 10, we're looking at these verses today, and it tells us that Jesus saves sinners and judges evil. And it's against the backdrop of the gospel that slaves of Christ are chosen and kept by Christ. They're loved by Christ. But there are those 
who are judged for their evil because they refuse Christ. In the context we've seen, we've looked at the first four verses of Jude, and Christ's slaves who belong to him, bought with a price, are being exhorted to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to contend for the word of God, to to comfort Christ's church, to continue in his power, to confess Christ as Lord over all. And they were being strongly exhorted to do this because intruders had crept in, like crept in the side door, and Jude is compelled out of necessity to write this urgent appeal to fight for a purposeful cause. The faith once for all delivered, salvation, truth, like the things we would die for. The authority of scripture and the virgin birth and the incarnation, the blood atonement, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the physical return of Christ. And we are being told to exercise great effort, to exert all of our energy in all-out war against falsehood, and to stand for the truth and discern truth from error and confront error. I was thinking through Jude so much in these run-up to this series, and, and I want to give you something today that I think will help us as we go forward through Jude, that there is a, a summary statement, a summary sentence that would really capture the whole book of Jude and then help us as we go through each part. What God would have us glean, what God would have us glean and gain from Jude. And it goes like this. Slaves of Christ, chosen and kept, that's verses 1 and 2, must contend for the faith, verses 3 and 4, knowing God judges evil, verses 5 through 16, persevering with, with mercy, verses 17 to 23, and trusting God's promise, verses 24 and 25. And the next couple sermons that I'll preach through in Jude is all about knowing that God judges evil, verses 5 through 16. And he's going to run through some cycles here condemning false teachers First today, we'll see in verses 5 through 10, but then also in verses 11 through 16. And he's going to use Old Testament illustrations to make his points, to illustrate judgment. Jude 5 to 10 is going to give us three Old Testament examples as warnings, and then three errors of these intruders to guard against. And when you look at this, this passage of scripture, it's, it's exceedingly interesting. Like, you keep reading things, you're like, what does this mean? What's he saying here? This is... This is wild, exceedingly interesting, but it's also exceedingly disturbing because it's, it's talking about things that we would rather not talk about. Jude is bringing up three types of infectious evil and their punishment so that we will see false teaching the way God sees it because we have to see and view false teaching as seriously as God does or we might fall to it. That it is evil against God, judged by God. Now again, this is one of the, the toughest passages of Scripture to interpret in the Bible. And I'm, here's how it's going to go today. There will be one quick point in verse 5, the first part of verse 5. And then there's going to be a longer point, uh, the, the second part of verse 5 all the way to verse 10. So we'll, we'll take a little bit of time on the first point and then the bulk of our time on the the big second point, and in that big second point, we're going to have those three Old Testament examples and three New Testament examples. So there's a lot in the second point. But first, what I want you to see is a glimmer of gospel hope 
in verse 1, and then we'll have to address the evil. The idea that's getting proposed here is that anyone who dependently trusts Christ will be saved, but those who sinfully do evil will be judged, because Jesus saves sinners and Jesus judges evil. But the first point I want you to see is that Jesus saves sinners. In verse 5, he begins, now I want to remind you. It's always good to be reminded of good things. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus. Now he says that the God who brought Israel out of Egypt is Jesus. That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. But first, he saved the people. I want to focus on Christ's salvation. He, Jesus gloriously saves. And as we'll see, he gloriously judges and destroys. This reminder motif is, is very common in the New Testament. Paul told the Romans, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me. Peter said, I intend always to remind you that, that though you, you know the truth and you're established in the truth, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. He even says, I want to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Preaching is a ministry of reminding. It's good to be reminded of good things. It's good to be reminded of salvation truth. He says that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. This is the exodus. This is where they were freed from Pharaoh and his evil rule. This was a deliverance brought about by God, and it pictures, it prefigures really the, 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 the deliverance that God gives to all those who believe. In fact, you can put it this way. Anyone who's ever been saved, in the Old Testament economy, the New Testament economy, anyone who's ever been saved is saved the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the Redeemer alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Redeemer. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, even before the law came in. The gospel was promised in Genesis chapter 3. Anyone who's ever been saved gets saved the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the reminder here is, to make sure that you are trusting Jesus. Are you following Christ? Do you believe? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Now, some of you may say, well, I'm undecided. I'm on the fence. I don't know for sure. I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. What can you tell me? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus made everything. Made the world. He created the world. Jesus loves all he created. Jesus died for sinners at the cross in their place, and he was buried, and then Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He secured redemption. He secured salvation, forgiveness for those who would believe in him, that were lost in their sins, that were under the wrath of God, and, and he saves sinners. Jesus saves. Jesus saves sinners, and Jesus is going to return with blessing for those who believe, and for, with judgment for those who do not, and he's going to rule forever. So what you need to do then is trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. Apart from your own efforts, that you would know that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to save you. Now, if you're at the point in your life where you're like, I want this. I, I, I wasn't a believer in Jesus. I want to be a believer in Jesus right now. Wouldn't this be awesome? 
Here's the thing. Most likely, then, you are thinking to yourself, but I am the worst sinner that has ever lived. Because by the time you want Jesus as your Savior and to be saved by him, you're thinking, there's no way that God would save me because I'm the worst. This is what Paul even said about his own, his own heart. He said, look, it's, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And then he said, among whom I'm the worst. I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner there has ever been. And if you get to that place, it means that the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart of your sin. There's been a work of regeneration done, and God is actually drawing you to himself in his love so that you would believe in him. And if you want to be saved by Jesus, you will be saved by Jesus. If you're saying, Jesus, I want you to save me. I want to trust in you alone to save me from my sins because I believe that your shed blood at the cross in my place is sufficient to save me, that there is really forgiveness in you. And the burden of my sins is no longer on me but on you because you took them at the cross. This is the best news. There is forgiveness in Christ. Jesus saves sinners. And we want to make this point right up front because, because Jude made it. But we have to spend the rest of our time on how Jesus judges evil. Now Jude has an affinity for threes, and, and we know this, I've mentioned it before, but it comes out in spades here. Several times in the following verses, you'll see groupings of three things. And the first thing we see in verses five through seven are three Old Testament examples of, of evil that it will be judged by God. And, and, and he's going to explain how the evil is judged. So the crime and the punishment. So verse 5, when he said, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now this is referring to Exodus 12. There was a prison break out of Egypt, but then there was much complaining it was like, oh, you took us out in the wilderness to kill us out here because we don't like the food you've given us. God gave them something called manna or manna, and it means, what is this? There's no name for it. God, God gave them organic, fresh food delivered every day, but they didn't like the taste, right? And so they said, no, we want better food. We want the leeks and onions we had in Egypt. We want our appetites to be to be satisfied by what we want. Numbers 21 tells us they became impatient and grumbled against God and Moses. What did God do? Numbers 21.6 says God sent fiery serpents among them and many died for their unbelief. They refused to trust God's provision. They were complaining. And Jude is telling us about sneaky preachers Introducing strange doctrines, ear ticklers, leading people astray. Psalm 95 tells us, don't harden your heart. Don't be unbelieving. And God gave many examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see examples that we are not to follow, but that we are to learn from. 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, you'll notice beginning at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10.1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles with me. He says this, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, and in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. God pronounced judgment on those who did not believe him. In the book of Hebrews, we see this. In Hebrews 3, questions kind of come in rapid-fire succession. Who heard but then rebelled? All who left Egypt led by Moses. Who was God provoked by for 40 years? Those who sinned and bodies fell in the wilderness. To whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? Those who were disobedient. And they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In Hebrews 4, it says that while the promise remains of entering God's rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There are plenty of people that just say, I will not believe. There's been so many terror attacks, a lot of uptick in terror attacks and in natural disasters, and so many people question God. And they will say, why does a loving God allow people to suffer? Uh, Why do bad things happen? Uh, And there is a skepticism about God's justice. I think about when God announced Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment. Here's what Abraham said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked... Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? As we know, there is none righteous, no, not one. What do we need to do with this? We need to believe. We need to believe truth, not lies. We need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Here was was Jude writing to a group of people that were literally being crushed under a weight of false ideas, but not just false ideas, false living. A lot of times we think, oh, false teachers, they're, they're, they're teaching doctrines that are not right. Let's just stay away from that. Well, that is true, but they're also showing a pattern of life that is ungodly. By their deeds, they are denying Christ. So many times it crops up in sinful living, in in ways that God says, don't live this way, and people saying, no, I'm going to do this, and they don't believe the truth, they believe lies instead. And God's justice leads him to punish the unrighteous and preserve the righteous, those he makes righteous in Christ. So the first is unbelief, that you, there's the crime and the punishment, unbelief, and the punishment being destroyed. The second point is rebellion, verse 6. And this is one of the toughest verses in the Bible to interpret, and here's how it goes. The angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, they, they're not in their domain, they're not in their sphere of rule, their spiritual state in which they were created, but left their proper dwelling that he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here's what we know. We'll go with what the text tells us. The angels left their habitation. These are fallen angels, but we don't know exactly what happened. They forsook their dwelling. Again, one of the toughest passages in the Bible, toughest verses to interpret. Who's he talking about? What kind of angels? What happened? What was the crime? Said they left their place. What was the punishment? They're kept in gloomy chains. So this is really serious. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2 has some, some very uh, uh, sharp 
similarities with Jude. In fact, what I would say is keep 2 Peter 2 on speed dial as we go through Jude. And 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, If God did not spare angels, speaking of the same situation, when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Interesting phrase, cast into hell. Only time in the scripture that you see that phrase. And it's, it's one Greek word that makes up that phrase, and it's not Gehenna, as you might think. It is Tartarus. Tartarus, the place of the wicked dead. And it says that he did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. What we know is that these were demons, fallen angels, that were doing evil. They went into, and I'm going to give you a theory here that there's a lot of different ways people can take this. There's a few that seem plausible, and I'm going to give you one theory. I'm going to kind of piece together a patchwork here a little bit, and it might be what it's referring to, and maybe it's not. And I want to make that clear. There's demons, fallen angels, doing evil. And here's what it seems that they did. They, they went into exclusive human territory, and they, they, they went past where God told them they are to, they are to operate. Now, you see st- stuff like this in the New Testament, where the, the demons will say to Jesus, send us into the swine, like, don't send us into the abyss. Like, let's go do some other mischief. We don't want to go back. And here's the theory, that this is referring to Genesis chapter 6. And if you go to Genesis 6, which you'll notice, and this is in verses 1 through 6. Let me go ahead and read it. When, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you know the rest. He regretted that he made man on the earth, grieved him in his heart, and he has said he's going to then destroy the world by a flood. So the theory is this, that Certain angels crossed species lines and cohabitated with women. It brought about the race of Nephilim, men of renown, giants, who were doing evil continually. Then the flood came as a result. And again, there's various views, but the sons of God would be fallen angels, the daughter of men would be humans, which would best explain why some angels are bound, why some angels are free. And there's a tie-in a possible tie-in to 1 Peter chapter 3. I know I told you to keep 2 Peter on speed dial, but go to 1 Peter 3, and let me just go ahead and read to you verses 18 through 20. Speaking of Christ suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, there's Genesis 6, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what we know is that Jesus went and made proclamation to spirits in prison, those who did not obey in the days of Noah. Again, Genesis 6 that he was proclaiming victory over evil. And if you piece together this patchwork, it goes like this. The demons intermixed with humans, the race of Nephilim, 
were, were brought about, and God destroyed the world as a result. And he put those, those evil angels, those demons, into the abyss, into Tartarus, being held for the lake of fire on the judgment day. And that's why some demons would say to Jesus, don't torment us before the time. Don't send us into the abyss. If you think of the Apostles' Creed, there is a sentence that I have struggled with which says that Jesus descended into hell before paradise. That would be Tartarus, not Gehenna. And what did he do there? He, pro he proclaimed victory that Satan had been conquered at the cross. Now, whatever the interpretation of the text, the plain meaning that's intended is quite clear. That these angels, these, these demons, did not accept God's chosen place for them, and they did not respect God's power over them. They weren't content with heaven, so they got hell. And Judah's talking about a rebellion that is so bad that God destroyed the world. That's how serious rebellion against God is. That God will judge, and then in Jude, he's saying, God will judge false teachers who take roles that aren't theirs and lead people astray into places that God doesn't want them to go. Jesus said that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Revelation tells us that the devil who had deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now there, there is some rebellion, human rebellion, that is noteworthy. I mean, I think of the American Revolution, and we could say, thank God for bringing that about. But it is always bad to rebel against God and his authority. Many are rejecting God's authority today. You need to respect God's power over you and over all and enjoy your God-given role. That's what I think the takeaway would be off of this idea of rebellions. You've got un unbelief. You need to believe. Rebellion, you need to respect God's power over you and all because there are many who won't and who don't. And then there's a third point, a third Old Testament example in verse 7. And it's the idea of immorality. And he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, in like manner, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they went against nature, they, they had a bent for unnatural sexual acts, they turned aside from the right way, that these serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. There's a, a note of dread here. There's a punishment, there's a suffering, and there's a, that's a legal phrase. And it literally means that a sentence was passed by God the judge, and you must face the reality of the fires of hell. Genesis 13 tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Genesis 18 says the, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Genesis 19 says that the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants. 
Jesus says it will be more tolerable on the day of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you, to those who would not believe. Luke says that on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. There's a, uh, a place called Mount Etna. It's in Italy. It's in Sicily. And it's Europe's most active volcano. It erupted this year. And the closest town is Catania. And they're under the path of the eruption cloud. Now, the eruption cloud went 6,500 feet up into the air. And it was filled with superheated gases and lava and ash and a combination of rock fragments and particles. Lava is going up 6,500 feet. Uh, it scared the people of Catania very much. But that is nothing compared to the intense heat and destruction of hell. And, and people can say, oh, hell doesn't exist. My Bible tells me it does. And the destruction and the intense heat never end. In fact, Peter says this, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And this is saying there's, an, there's immorality that was going on back then, and it was going on in Jude's time, and isn't this very relevant to the 21st century? where people will say, I don't like God's design. I don't like how God made me. I don't want to be what I am. I don't want to be a man anymore. I don't want to be a woman anymore. I want to leave my family. I want to do this. I want to do that. In Genesis 18, Lot moves to Sodom. They were notorious for sexual immorality, homosexuality, and rape. It was a dangerous place to be. You had to come in at night. It was a vile place. Genesis 19 tells us angels were harassed. We are living in a time of moral revolution. A rejection of Christian biblical morality which calls sexual perversion good. We have had for the past 27 days a rainbow pushed in front of our eyes on every screen that you can imagine. We need to reclaim the rainbow. It's God's message of hope. There was an NFL defensive lineman just this week that made headline news because he is now the first openly gay active athlete in the NFL. And the article I read said this could change the world. The end game is a cultural change that flips everything upside down, that, that eradicates God's design. Made front page of USA Today on June 1st, 21. They said they, want, they are envisioning a, a time when coming out as gay is not needed anymore because it's so normalized. And it is, this is the more radical agenda. It's an elimination of all distinctions. It's as anti-God as you can get. That they want the whole world reformulated. We are living in a time where we have had a redefinition of reality, of morality, of sexuality, of normality, and every other aspect of human existence. And you have depraved humanity at its babble-like worst, twisting the Bible to, to say what people want it to say. Churches preaching 
what people want to hear, even changing the dictionary and redefining everything. People are living in a fantasy world. Dictionary.com has just come out and boasted 15,000 new entries. They said this, we have updated topics that touch all of us on the most personal of levels, race, race and ethnicity, gender and sexuality, health and wellness. And then they said this, among many other things they said, previously used terms homosexual and homosexuality originated as clinical language. No, they originated as biblical language. And then they said this, dictionaries have historically perceived such language as scientific and unbiased, but homosexual and homosexuality are now associated with pathology, mental illness, and criminality, and so imply that being gay, which they say is a normal way of being, is sick, diseased, or wrong. Every morality has been redefined. And I am not hammering the world. I'm answering it. I'm preaching Jude 5 to 10. What do you think is going to come up? Our culture is taking a sledgehammer to everything that God has said. And if you don't believe that, wake up and smell the roses. This contentious fight was forced upon the church. And so what must we do? We must lovingly and firmly answer it with the word of God. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus defines everything. Jesus defines everything. Man does not define. He attempts to define. Jesus defines everything. He saves sinners and he judges evil. Now, if you're struggling with any of this, if you're struggling, if you're, if you're, Whatever age, you can be whatever age, but let's just say that you're know, under 30 and you have heard from the get-go that it is okay to be whatever you want and you can identify as anything you want and you are struggling with this because you are confused because you've been drinking the water that many of us are rejecting and you have to fight the tide because it is so strong. If you're struggling, we need to talk. You need to hear what the Bible says, but you're not gonna hear how to say that evil is good or how to follow Christ while you are engaging in blatant sin. And I'm not talking just about this, but it, just the whole litany of what the Bible says we shouldn't do. That we're not gonna tell you how to, how to call yourself a Christian while engaging in blatant sin. What you'll be called to is to believe in the Lord Jesus, believe the word, no matter what anyone else says about it, and lovingly and, and kindly and humbly speak and live the truth as you interact with people that are attempting to redefine everything. So unbelief, rebellion, immorality has become normalized and it lulls many to sleep. Romans 1.32 says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. If you're a believer, if you're professing faith in Christ, you need to reject immorality in your own life, in your own heart, but also wherever it hits you right in the face. Because if you don't, everyone's gonna think you agree and it's okay. And this is what is happening over and over again. People are saying, I can be a Christian and do this, 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 and this. That's how I used to think when I was an unbeliever, that I can call myself whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. 
But when you come to know Christ, now your whole entire life is reoriented around Jesus and the word of God. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And this is the pattern of life. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I love the note of hope. He is writing to a group of people. And by the way, there's a whole litany of things listed. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You're being sanctified in Christ. That means you, you repented of your sins. You recognized that it was wrong, and you went in the way of Christ. You need to heed the warnings against unbelief, against rebellion, against immorality. And next, he gives three New Testament examples, verses 8 through 10. Three sins deserving judgment. I know we'd rather hear the feel-good story. He says this, in similar fashion, so in spite of the, three, the fate of the three groups mentioned, the adversaries denied Christ by their deeds, not just bringing destructive heresies in, but actually destructive living. And they might not have done exactly as those Old Testament sins, but they also deserve judgment for their sins. And the first sin that's listed is rebellious impurity. Verse 8, in like manner, these people also... These, uh, six times in Jude, you're going to find the word these. It's referring to the apostates, referring to those who are, by their deeds, denying Christ. It says they rely on their dreams. It means that they're saying, they're making stuff up in their head, and they're saying, God gave us permission to do this. That's what people are doing left and right right now. God gave me permission to do this. I can be a Christian and do this, or be that. They're falsely claiming their dreams and their visions are from God. They're confused. It's talking about an abnormal imagination, a delusion, a mind numb to the word of God where someone is fantasizing wicked perversions and are blind to reality and they're claiming that God approves of their sin. And he says these, and he's characterizing them now in three ways. First, they defile the flesh. Similar to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. No moral restraints, immoral lifestyles. And by the way, don't be proud if you're sitting here going, I'm not like that. Well, you, you're proud. If you're sitting there saying, I'm not like that, you need to confess your sin of pride and arrogance. Those who defile the flesh, we should, we should weep over this. Defile the flesh, similar to people of Sodom and Gomorrah. No moral restraints, immoral lifestyles, sexual sin. Where they stain or defile the flesh. That's used of moral defilement and pollution that goes on and on and on. It indicates of a habit of life, a continual action, which is an impurity that is contagious. Other people start doing the same thing. We're living in those days, folks. And then they reject authority, like the sinning angels in verse 6. They reject all authority. They reject the scriptures. They deny Christ. They reject Christ's lordship. They say Christ is not going to rule over us. We're going to make the rules. So they take the authority, the majestic ruling power of God, the gospel, the power of God for salvation that destroys fortresses, and they say, we don't want it. They set it aside. They do away with it. They nullify it by their own words, and they don't recognize it is valid. They despise it. Proverbs 13, 13 says, whoever despises the word of God will be in debt to it. And again, it's not specifically doctrinal, it's oftentimes moral. And then the third thing they do is blaspheme the glorious ones. They speak evil of dignitaries, literally, glories, literally, the glorious ones. Those are angelic beings. Opposing, they oppose the will of God, and they even revile demons who they are aligned with. They will mock the devil's power. 
2 Peter 2.10 says, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. See, rejecting authority leads to immorality. There's a UC professor that just wrote an article and said that they envision a time when heterosexuality is no longer the norm, which means they will deny having babies, which means they want an eradication of God's design. And there's enormous pressure to cave in. Some of you may have. You must bring the word of God to bear upon your own heart, your own home, and people's lives. God's not going to be mocked. God will not be mocked. There's rebellious impurity, but there's also prideful arrogance. And this is the next example in verse 9. And, we, and it's really juxtaposed with Michael's humility, Archangel Michael's humility. Look at verse 9. It says, when the Archangel Michael, so the chief among the angels, the highest angel, the Jews considered him the highest angel, God's representative, the authority, the prominence, uh, the Archangel, the chief angel of God that protects Israel, watches over Israel, leads the holy angels. Revelation 12 tells us that war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back. Here is Michael, the archangel, Jude says, contending, literally fighting, taking issue with, disputing with the devil. And the devil is a name for Satan, which means accuser and slanderer. Michael fought with Satan to do God's will. He'd done it previously. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says that the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, which goes right along with Hebrews 1, 14, that angels are ministering spirits set out by God to render service to those who will inherit salvation. And Daniel 10, 21 says, none contends by my side except Michael. Here is Michael the archangel disputing about the body of Moses. Moses, we know this, Moses died on Mount Nebo in, in uh, Moab without entering the promised land. And he was secretly buried in a place not known to man. Deuteronomy 34 tells us he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Why would Michael the archangel be fighting with the devil about the body of Moses? It's the only place in scripture that this fight over Moses' body is even referred to. Likely it took place as Michael buried Moses to prevent Satan from using Moses' body for some diabolical purpose, like as an idol to set up to get, people to, to get people of Israel to worship. So God sent Michael to make sure that Moses' body was really buried and didn't tell anyone where it was so that people wouldn't go and worship his body. And it says here in verse 9, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He's fighting with the devil. Michael the archangel, stronger than any of us. And he doesn't say a blasphemous thing to the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. That was a command that Jesus used to bring hostile powers under control, where he rebukes a demon that's harassing a boy in Matthew 17, and it left. So he doesn't curse, Michael does not curse Satan. He humbly defers to the sovereign power of God following the Lord's example. In Zechariah 3, we read that Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning, he's been rescued by me. I've forgiven him. He pronounces Satan's defeat as in court. 
Because God's chosen are vindicated by God himself. 2 Peter 2.11 says, Angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What's Jude's point? His point is that the reckless, arrogant resting on their shaky understanding of of life in contrast with righteous, self-controlled Michael standing on God's solid authority. You need to stand on God's solid authority. You need to guard against sins of arrogance. You need to know your God-given place and acknowledge his power and his authority and seek the Lord's intervening power against Satan and demons. Now, I need to mention something here uh, because Jude is saying something, and I've, I've loved this for a long time. I'm like, we find out in Jude some things that we didn't find out in the Old Testament about things that happened in the Old Testament. And it's pretty awesome. But what is he doing here? He is quoting literature outside of the Bible, extra-biblical literature. It's recorded in what is called the Assumption of Moses. This is what he is quoting. It's an apocryphal Jewish work that expands the narrative of Moses' burial. And he is using this apocryphal Jewish material that's not in the canon of Scripture. He is quoting this. Now, this is a rare thing in Scripture, where something outside the Bible is being quoted in the Bible. But a lot of writers would sometimes do this. And they occasionally, they use current works or historical works You see Paul quoting pagan poets in Acts 17. You see Titus uh, 1.12 speaking of Cretans uh, and using a a, a common thing that was written in those days. They're quoting extra-biblical literature under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to illustrate biblical truth. So the use of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is true. What we find out here really happened, but the source was not inspired. Okay, not everything in apocryphal literature or non-biblical documents is endorsed by God, but the use of the reference is inspired. The source was not inspired. And getting back to these points, there's a rebellious impurity, there's prideful arrogance uh, illustrated by Michael's humility. But one last point in verse 10, sinful ignorance. Verse 10 says this, these people blaspheme or speak evil of all that they do not understand and they are destroyed, literally ruined by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. They don't understand good. Things that they delight in destroy them, but they rail at what they don't understand. It's the intellectually arrogant. It's the spiritually ignorant. Blinded by Satan, and the truth is beyond them. They're spiritually no smarter than beasts, and they use abusive language with no fear of God. Romans 1 tells us, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 2 Peter 2.12 says, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. What is Jude doing? He is unmasking the apostates. He's urging believers to humbly and boldly contend for the faith. What can you and I learn from this last point? We need to guard our mouths and our minds and not be ignorant, but go with the truth. So this has been a lot today. It's a lot to take. In these verses, five to 10, he is warning against unbelief, against rebellion, against immorality, rebellious impurity, prideful arrogance, sinful ignorance. And here's the aggregate teaching here. All evil leads to judgment. Sin is serious. You need to seek Christ, seek godliness. 
You need to walk by faith. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to be obedient to the word of God. You need to live a pure life. You need to seek to live a pure life. And that will take you remembering God on a daily basis. In 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn summarized why Soviet communism came to pass. Here's what he said. People have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Isn't it easy? God said, my, my people have forgotten me days without number. This is why it's so necessary to be reminded of truth. Like baby Jessica, uh, think of that story again. Is one soul worth 58 hours of intense attention? Is one soul worth 58 hours of intense attention? That they would be rescued even from their sins. What we'll find out uh, near the end of Jude is that we are to remind those that are strong in the faith, we are to rescue those who are in danger, and we are to refute those who have fully rejected the faith. What that means is you're going to spend time with people. You're going to have to spend time with people of all shapes and sizes, all sorts, and be loving and kind, and meet and share your life, tell your testimony, how you came to faith in Christ, maybe if you're, if you're meeting with believers, who's building into your life, who you're building into, how you're serving the Lord. You could state your intent to please Christ, define your relationship with God, ask them good questions, but you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and surrender to him because it's his mercy that is very sweet to our souls. And his judgment is absolutely just. And it's coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're Mercy is sweet and your judgment is just and that you save sinners and you judge evil. And Lord, there are some things that are so hard for us to, to reconcile, to understand, to, to deal with because they're painful. And we all know people who are outside of, of your bounds. We don't want to be that way, Lord. We want to dependently trust you. And Lord, we want to see you free many people for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.